Welcome to The Landscape, your show about the outdoors and America's public lands. I'm Kate Gretzinger with the Center for Western Priorities, coming to you from Tiny Bluff, Utah. And I'm Aaron Weiss, coming to you from less tiny Denver, Colorado. On the show today, we're talking to author and journalist Jonathan Thompson. Jonathan grew up in Durango. He has been writing for High Country News for over a decade. He's also been hiking on the Colorado Plateau literally since he could walk. And Jonathan may know more about public lands in southwestern Colorado and southeastern Utah than anybody else writing today. He has a new book out called Sagebrush Empire, which is, of course, about the Sagebrush Rebellion and how San Juan County, where I live, became ground zero in the war over America's public lands. He's going to talk about some of the interesting stuff he learned researching the book and share his views on public land management as well. But first, let's do the news. Kicking off the news this week, some massive donations to the 30 by 30 campaign. If you're a landscape listener, then you probably already know about the 30 by 30 goal and why it's important. If you are new here, I regret to inform you that the world is teetering on the edge of a biodiversity crisis in addition to the climate crisis. Yep. Scientists say that we lose a football field-sized area of land to new development every 30 seconds, and that's threatening countless species and accelerating climate change. Scientists think that preserving 30% of the Earth's land and water will help avoid a massive extinction, as well as help fight climate change. But we've got a long way to go to get there. So it is great news that Amazon founder Jeff Bezos announced on Monday that he will give a billion dollars to the 30 by 30 effort. Bezos said he will focus his funding on carbon sinks like the Congo Basin in Africa, the Andes Mountains in South America, and tropical parts of the Pacific Ocean. Three days after Bezos made his announcement, six other foundations pledged a total of $4 billion to 30 by 30. That includes $500 million from the Weiss Foundation, which has already committed a billion dollars to the effort. Here at the Center for Western Priorities, we're excited about these big donations since they'll likely help protect parts of the Western United States through public-private partnerships and encourage the Biden administration to do its part by creating new national monuments. But not everyone feels that way. In fact, the Sagebrush Rebellion is essentially a backlash against efforts to protect and preserve public lands. Which brings us back to Jonathan Thompson and his book, Sagebrush Empire. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Happy to be here. Your book, Sagebrush Empire, is essentially the backstory of every article you've written about public lands conflicts in the West, or at least in Utah. How did you decide to undertake such a massive endeavor? Were you intimidated by the scope and depth of the subject at all? Um, well, yeah, I was intimidated. I'm always intimidated by stories when I go into them. But um, actually, in the beginning, the, the way I undertook it is I, my, my publisher, Tory House Press, they called me and, and they wanted me to write a story or a, a book about uh, GateGate, which is, uh, we can get into that if you want, but it's about a couple of Durango environmentalists who got almost went to prison for closing a gate on a corral in San Juan County. And, and I actually thought I was more intimidated by that because of the limited scope of it. I thought that's not enough to write a book about. I can't do that. And, and, but as I started getting into it, I realized that actually the book was about a much bigger thing, which is the public lands wars and how they've played out in San Juan County. Not only how they played out in San Juan County, but how, San Juan County has sort of been the archetype of those 
public land wars in a way has like been the center and it's been where all the different elements have kind of played out there. So it turned out to be a huge story. Um, so it, this one was kind of the kind, kind of book where I, I started out with something that seemed pretty limited and ended up covering something that was huge. Yeah, it's pretty long, but it it went by really fast. I mean, I've really enjoyed reading it. It's sort of like every story I've heard about San Juan County since I moved here is is like put into one book. It's really, really satisfying. <laughs> Great. So I want to back up a tiny bit and ask you to just define the Sagebrush Rebellion or Sagebrush Rebel for our listeners who may not be entirely familiar with what that means. Yeah, so the the term sagebrush rebel was actually probably not, as far as I can tell, the first time it was used was probably in 1979. But the concept goes back much further. And, and basically, to put it very simply or to distill it down, it's basically this idea of local control over public lands within one's domain, if if you will. So in San Juan County's case, it has to it happens to do with the locals wanting to have more say and less restrictions on the vast public lands within San Juan County and probably in surrounding counties as well. And it takes the form of, you know, it's conservative as far as if you're talking about which way it leans politically, it's a conservative movement. Um, and it is usually kind of anti-federal land management, anti-regulation, small government. It really started, I would say, with ranchers, and it probably started back way back in the late 1800s when various forces in Washington, D.C. and across the West as well started saying, hey, you know, there's all these public domain lands and it's full on uh, free for all. And we want to start putting some restrictions so we can conserve some of this landscape for future use. Mm. And that's the Taylor Grazing Act, right? Yeah, well, actually, the Taylor Grazing Act came later. In the beginning, it was the Forest Reserves Act, which withdrew land from what is now the BLM, but then it was just called the public domain. It was managed by the general land office and it was all up for quote disposal, which meant that it could be homesteaded or it could be mining claims could be made on it or whatnot. And so in the late 1800s, early 1900s, the forest reserve act was passed, which allowed the federal government to withdraw parts of it and make them essentially national forest where they were no longer open to homesteading or um, mining claims. Mm, cool. Aaron, why don't you jump in? How much did Ronald Reagan lend the movement, I guess if you want to call it that, lend the movement credibility by saying, well, consider myself a, a sagebrush rebel? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. So that that branch of it really started in about the mid-1970s. Really, first of all, FLIPMA, which is the Federal Land Policy and Management Act, was passed, which essentially gives the BLM the mandate to manage for multiple uses, rather than just for rather than just being the Bureau of Livestock and Mining, as it was called before. Uh, yes. And that's what really started it. And then Jimmy Carter was elected, and that definitely emphasized the whole Sagebrush Rebellion. And then. Reagan comes along and as he's campaigning, he says, I am a sagebrush rebel. 
and then he gets elected. And he basically, I think he added credibility to it for sure. At that time, at that point, by the time Reagan was elected, actually, the Sagebrush Rebellion movement had moved from being sort of this rebellion to a fairly mainstream movement because you had people like Senator Orrin Hatch and other Nevada and other Western Congress people who had started, they had even started their own group, which was for states' rights, as they called it. And they were they had gained quite a bit of, of clout already. But then when Reagan came in and said that, yeah, it, it definitely lent a huge amount of clout to it. But then Reagan got elected and then he basically hired uh, or appointed sagebrush rebels to run the government and run the federal lands, including James Watt, the most notoriously. And Watt ended up bringing in William Perry Pendley, who later ran the BLM for Trump. Um, and that actually, I mean, I think it added credibility, but it also sort of dampened the sagebrush rebellion because there was no longer something to rebel against. And so in a lot of places, in most places, the Sagebrush Rebellion kind of faded away. That wasn't the case really in San Juan County, though. <laughs> Still going strong here. Yeah, it didn't, you know, it didn't fade out. It sort of faded out a little bit. But it, one thing that happened that when Reagan took over that a lot of people don't really realize is that on the one hand, he was trying to get rid of regulations and he did get rid of regulations on public lands. On the other hand, he was kind of he was such a free market guy. He was freeing up the corporations basically to go global. And that's when globalization really went crazy. And as a result of globalization and as a result of like actually reducing subsidies, uh, corporate subsidies during that time, there was an oil bust uh, because basically energy independence was no longer that important. Is like get the oil wherever you can the cheapest, which was far away. So there was this oil bust in the United States and mining, a lot of mining went overseas at that time. And so places like San Juan County, their economy started really suffering under Reagan um, for economic reasons, not not because of environmentalists, but that, that created a resentment and, and a bitterness. And so San Juan County people... Um, lashed out against the government still and against environmentalists. And Cal Black happened to be there at the time, who was one of the founders of the Sagebrush Rebellion movement. And he was a county commissioner in San Juan County and a businessman. So he was watching the uranium industry die, and he was a uranium. And he also lashed back against the federal government for that. So it, it really didn't die in San Juan County. Fun fact about Cal Black, I'm pretty sure, correct me if this is wrong, Jonathan, but I'm pretty sure he wore a necklace around his neck with a chunk of uranium or yellow cake in it. That's correct. Yes, he did, because he was convinced it wouldn't hurt him. And Cal Black ultimately died in 1989 or 1990, I think, of something like that, of cancer, lung cancer. Uh, and yeah, <laughs> I doubt if he smoked since he was probably a, a devout Mormon, I would guess. Um, so yeah. How much of... The Sagebrush Rebellion then is actually a belief in free markets, or how much is is it a religious underpinning? And I recognize that you are not Betsy Gaines Quammen, who is the one we really should get on here to talk about the the, the religious connotations here. But is there a, a belief that God gave me the rights to this land and I want protections so I can make money on it, as opposed to we're just free marketeers? Yeah, I, and I talk about that a little bit in the book, and and. 
I actually take some issue. I, I don't necessarily agree that the Sagebrush Rebellion is fully rooted in Mormon theology. And the reason I think that is because if you if you read the writings of Brigham Young, especially, and Joseph Smith before him, but especially Brigham Young, the guy, he first of all, he, he was essentially almost a Marxist in that he believed in this thing called the, the United Order, which is basically where everybody gives up all their wealth to the leaders of the community and they redistribute it. And it's a collective. So every town was a collective under this idea. And he did not like capitalism. He did not, you know, the capitalism at the time, you know, the banks were were big and there was uh, the big barons and all that stuff were going on. And Brigham Young did not like that at all. And he really pushed against that. And he, and he was not a free marketeer at all, quite to the contrary. And he believed in education. He sometimes talked about the history of the earth and talked about it in the terms of millions of years old. You know, he was not like an evolutionist, I mean, a creationist. He essentially talked about, you know, evolution in sort of vague, vague ways. His rhetoric, at least, was supportive of indigenous people and against kind of the federal policies of removal and termination. And there's one quote that he makes something about how the land is not to be owned by private interest, but it's to be owned by everybody, the streams and, and stuff. So so it's on the one hand, like you, I don't think you can trace it back that far to it. And then also if you if you go forward a little bit, for example, in the early 1900s when Teddy Roosevelt was around and Gifford Pinchot and that those people, one senator Henry Smoot from Utah, who is a devout Mormon, I think he was even a bishop maybe in the Mormon church, he was totally for the Pinchotism or Rooseveltism, if you will. He was all about conservation. He wasn't about preservation necessarily, but he was definitely about setting aside forests and setting aside natural resources so that it would be saved for the future generations. Um, and he was a, totally into national monuments and national parks and that sort of thing. So I don't think you can trace all that back that far. But then later in the 1950s, especially in the 1960s, when you had McCarthyism and stuff like that, then the church took a big shift ideologically. And that's when they became free marketeers and started to become a business empire in and of themselves. It was Ezra Taft Benson was one of the leaders of the Mormon church who, who did that. Uh, this guy, um, Cleon Skusen who was a theologist. Yes, the, of the of the Skilson Constitution fame. Yes, and he is he was never high up in the church or anything, but he was considered sort of a, he was sort of an outlier, but he was considered a theologian of LDS thought. And he um, influenced the Bundys. He influenced all these people, you know, like he, he was a big... Out of morbid curiosity, was Skusen a lawyer at any point or... Is the Bundy's interpretation of the Constitution based on a, a non-lawyer's read of it? No, Skusen was not. <laughs> he, I don't think he was a lawyer. He was a he was a police he was the police chief of Salt Lake City, though. That's oh, one point. Okay. Um, and he but, is actually, but not a constitutional scholar by any stretch. No, although he certainly pretends to be one. Yeah, <laughs> plays one. Okay. On Sorry, that was really really off topic. <laughs> here, but. I do have to ask, though. I mean, part of my understanding of the Sagebrush Rebellion is that it's 
rooted in this very deep anti-federal government sentiment, which does seem to be a symptom of Mormonism. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I, but I, I guess the, the distinction I would make is I don't think that comes from the theology itself. I don't think that comes from like the Book of Mormon or something or the, or the teachings of Brigham Young or anybody like that. I think that comes from the fact that, A, the Mormons were persecuted um, even before they got to Utah. B, once they got to Utah, you know, they, they were thwarted in a lot of their efforts to create communities and that sort of thing by anti-Mormon sentiment within the federal government. And, you know, polygamy was a big part of that. And the federal government, they didn't want a state of Deseret, uh, generally speaking. Um, they did want, not want polygamy, of course, and, and the, the church had to condemn it in order to basically gain statehood for Utah. Uh, Utah, there was no homesteading in Utah early on, not among Mormons. So while these surrounding states are all getting homesteaded by white um, settlers, that couldn't happen in Utah. And so there was a lot of a lot of resentment just because they were being kind of persecuted or they they perceived themselves to being persecuted. In San Juan County, that was emphasized by the fact that in the early in the 1890s, late 1880s and early 1890s, members of Congress had started this big effort to turn San Juan, all of San Juan County into a reservation for Navajo, Utes, and Paiutes and kick the Mormon settlers out without ever, of course, consulting with the Mormon settlers. So we called the place home. And, and of course, you know, the Mormon settlers never consulted with the indigenous people before they came either. But uh, so they're kind of getting what they deserved. At the same time, I think that they saw it as like, look, these outsiders are trying to basically not only control us, but trying to ruin our lives and kick us out of what we now think of as our home, even if it's we don't like it that much. And so I think there's things like that from early on that created this resentment, this anti-federal, not only anti-federal government resentment, but also anti, anti-outsider sentiment. Mm. Totally. Yeah. And that's still totally present, which is why everyone ends up in bluff who's not from here. (laughs) Um, So I want to switch gears a tiny bit, even though I think this question is pretty connected to what we've been talking about. But you you talk about in the book, um, especially in relation to Bears Ears, the monument designation, about the emergence of this anti-green green movement. Could you just tell people what what that what you mean by that and sort of introduce them to this new type of thought? You know, when the Bearsers Monument was proposed by the Intertribal Coalition of Five Tribal Nations, there was the obvious camps. So you had the Sagebrush Rebels, as I've, as we've talked about before. They were opposed to that, naturally. I mean, we would expect that. A little bit less expected was that there was this group of local Navajo people who were also opposed to it, which was kind of a surprise. But then there was this other group that came out opposed to it, which was somewhat surprising, but I call them the anti-green greens because they come from sort of an environmental background or environmentalist ideology, I guess. They believe or they have believed in the past um, in preserving lands and setting aside wilderness areas and stuff like that. But they opposed it. For various reasons, one one of the 
the biggest reasons that they opposed Berger's National Monument was because they thought that it would draw more visitors and thus have more impacts in the long run. Um, but they also opposed it because they saw it as big green, as these big moneyed environmental groups, which some of these anti-green greens, as I call them, had come to hate, um, in part because they have lots of money, uh, that it was, it was this big scheme by them to kind of, I don't know, enrich the outdoor industry. <laughs> I can't say that I understand all of the motivations behind it, but it, it definitely was one of the branches of opposition. And, you know, I would say that to generalize that it was the members of this group were tended to be kind of middle-aged white males or a little bit older than middle-aged and who were big Ed, Ed Abbey fans. And, you know, they're kind of their, their motto was kind of, why don't we just leave it alone? Why don't you just leave it alone? I, f- I feel like in a lot of ways, like what they said makes sense. Like, yeah, why don't we just leave it alone? If you don't, if you don't draw attention to it, then it'll be okay because there's already, it's already federal land. It's already protected by multiple layers of protection. And if you don't draw attention to it, then people won't come here and it'll be okay. And we can still have our place where we can go find solitude and that sort of thing. Um, I think that they were a little bit uh, behind that they hadn't quite realized that Bears Ears, that whole area was not, it's not secret anymore. It was not secret before this proposal happened. It, it had been, quote, discovered. And it, you know, you look on the internet, you search for something like Moon House, which used to be kind of a local secret. And it's, there's hundreds, probably thousands, thousands of entries on it. Same with little slot canyons that 20 years ago people didn't know about are now super well-known and, and every inch of them is recorded on some blog about canyoneering. So so I, th- I think that a lot of that came out of this sort of nostalgia or clinging hopelessly to the past, if you will, or, or that kind of thing. And it, it wasn't really taking into account the fact that these places had been discovered and you have to do something about that. There's going to be more and more visitors, whether it's a national monument or not. And you've got to find some way to address that. And a national monument was, in my opinion, one way to address it. Maybe not the perfect way, but it it was something. I'm glad that we ended on that point, because I did want to ask you about balancing, you know, accessibility of public lands with protection. And I mean, there so many opinions on how to do that. So I'm curious, what do you think works and what do you think we should be doing? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a great question. It's, it's a really hard, it's a difficult issue to tackle because when you have something like oil and gas development, you can go in and you can put overarching rules on oil and gas Develop. Like you can say, okay, we're not going to allow this in this whole area on oil and gas. Um, it's a lot more difficult to do that with recreation. You know, for one thing, like recreation is individuals instead of an industry or companies. And so trying to, trying to regulate or trying to control or trying to manage all these individuals and what they do is extremely difficult unless you put up fences and gates everywhere, which of course you don't want to do. You know, I mean, there's some people 
who would say, well, you've, you've got to shut these places off and you've got to limit the number of people who go into this place or that place. And it's like, yeah, how do you do that without, I don't know, without having this, you know, huge, huge force of Rangers everywhere. Like, so, um, that, I don't think that works. And so the other, another uh, solution that some people have come up with is to disperse the crowds. They say, well, we don't want crowds in place X. The crowds are too big. So let's send them to other places that are lesser known. I don't think that works either because then you just get the impacts at these lesser known places while really not, you're not reducing the crowds that much at the popular places. So like if you're talking about Zion National Park, you got 4 million people a year. You know, what's going to happen if you take a million people away and send them to other places, you're still going to have 3 million people in Zion and you're going to have a million extra people somewhere else. So that doesn't work either. So, I mean, right now it seems to me like the best solution that I can think of is to go to the popular places or, or anticipate where places are going to be popular and harden those as they say, which means you build up, um, you build actual trails to them and trail ads and parking lots and toilet facilities, and you up the infrastructure enough so that you can accommodate the crowds that are there already. And then you try to draw attention away from the places that are still lesser known, and you don't develop those places, and you hope for the best. Is House on Fire the the example of that, where you've got somewhere that is not really hardened, but is also just a one-mile hike in off the trailhead or are, are those the types of places that need to get hardened first and i guess the the follow-up to that is you know what does that mean for the folks for whom that is not a tourist attraction but a sacred place yeah i mean that's i mean that's a good question so like i think you can compare house on fire with moon house which is another structure archaeological site um, that's near there but it's much less accessible and what they've done with Moonhouse is, is the BLM has put a permit system in. I think it's a maximum of 20 people a day can go in there. That's pretty easy to, relatively easy to regulate because you the road in there is very rough and difficult, and there's really only one kind of access point into it. So that's that's doable. And that's actually a great solution because you limit the number of people who go there. And if you limit the number of people, you can keep better tabs on them and hopefully mitigate um, damage. House on Fire is way more accessible. It's right It's right off the highway. Um, it's very uh, visually striking, so it's a big Instagram place. So the only option I can see there is, yeah, you, you could build a huge fence around the whole thing and try to keep people out. Or, yeah, you can do what they've, the BLM seems to want to do, which is to build an actual trail so that they reduce the number of social trails and to put up signs about visiting respect, uh, with respect, maybe putting some kind of barrier that's not super visible around the structure itself so that people don't go in and climb on it. And again, like that's not perfect. And be because it is, you know, it is it is a sacred place to a lot of people. But 
you know, those sacred places are, there's, there's hundreds of thousands of them. I mean, tens of thousands of them, at least across that landscape. And right now they're on public land, whether that should be public land or not, you know, is, is up for debate. But as long as they're on public land, you kind of have to keep them open to some degree to the public. And so I think you have to come up with solutions that allow the public to still see it, but that minimize the impact as much as possible. And so, you know, this seems like a, a good way to do that. It'll, it'll keep people from building more social trails. It'll, if they build toilet facilities, then people won't be crapping on the trail or next to the trail or whatever. And if they put up educational signage, hopefully, hopefully a lot of the damage that's being done is out of ignorance rather than maliciousness. And then maybe those people will be like, Hey, you know, I shouldn't be doing this and they'll act differently. Hmm. Yeah. I feel like one thing that happened this summer that's been so uh, distressing is all of the vandalism of petroglyphs. Cause it's like so much of the way that we're managing public lands or that people seem to agree is a good way to do it is education. You know, like you can't stop them. So you've got to just educate them. And it's like, sad to see that that's not exactly working everywhere right yeah and you know like the birthing rock near moab this spring was was horribly defaced um and that's you know that's one of those things where that was very close to an a motorized route Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know like i am absolutely in favor of you know, some people don't like it, but I'm absolutely in favor of closing motorized routes for sure. You know, I mean, I think that's a great way to minimize damage to places is make it harder for people to get to them. Hmm. And the way you do that is you close, you close roads. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, if, if, I mean, honestly, if you have to hike five miles into a place, the chances that you're going to hike in there and, Vandalize it, I think, is far less than if you can drive within a quarter mile of it. Or yeah, it makes it like harder. That. Yeah, I mean, less people will go there. So that's a great solution for a lot of places is just to close roads. Places that are in the backcountry or, or more remote. The problem with that is that in a place like San Juan County, you try to close a, a little road spur that's a half mile long that goes nowhere and they will come after you and like (laughs) burn things in your yard and stuff. Uh, You know, I mean, that happened at one point in like 2012 or something in in San Juan County, the BLM closed a road and it turns out that they were actually just closing it because it was damaged or something by a flash flood. And the sheriff launched a criminal investigation against the BLM. Uh, the, The BLM field manager, Somebody, his kid was bullied in school and somebody came to his house and drove donuts in his yard and with an ATV and all kinds of stuff like that. I mean, the guy was totally harassed because they they closed a road. It wasn't even for environmental reasons, I don't think. I think it was because the road was messed up. Um, so, uh, yeah, that it, you know, roads... Roads are a huge, huge issue, I think, environmentally in the sense that they, they, they cause problems. There's dust, et cetera, et cetera. But mostly they uh, facilitate access to remote places. But they're also a huge political 
thing for these people, for the sagebrush rebels. It's it's their one thing that they're holding on to the hardest now because you've got ranching and mining and all that stuff is dying naturally uh, or of sort of because of economics, not because of environmentalism. So then the last thing they have is kind of motorized recreation and roads. ATVs. Yeah, like like that's become the new ranching or the new traditional industry, as they call it, or whatever. And so they it, that's it's very difficult to to make any headway as far as you know even coming up with compromises as far as which roads can be open and which ones can't because you know San Juan County is has thousands of miles of motorized routes and they're for recreation purposes, not because they go to a mine or something like that. I knew we wouldn't be able to get through this with at least an oblique reference to Phil Lyman and, uh, <laughs> and his illegal ATV ride. Well, I, I, and that kind of brings us back to, to Gategate and the the whole way you got into this book uh, and that incident with great old broads that nearly sent some folks to prison. How did that end up? And I, I, how do you think it is it representative of the larger conflicts here that we've been talking about? Well, I think it's representative of the larger conflicts in the sense that if you go and you kind of look at how that played out, it's like these Durango environmentalists come in, they close a gate, and they almost go to prison for it. And if you look at kind of some of the dialogue that happens between the ranchers and between the county commissioners and between the sheriff's office and all that stuff, you know, you see that like there's this undercurrent of A, there's this resentment of outsiders, especially people from Durango which goes way back. Um, you know, and I don't say that just because I'm from Durango, but it's like Durango in San Juan County, Durango is seen as like the headquarters for the environmentalists. There's uh, Rose Chilcote and the great old brats who they had received death threats before. Um, they were actually going to hold a counter protest when, when Phil Lyman did his protest and Dave Foreman of all people who was like a monkey wrencher, you know, the, the founder of Earth First, he he called them Rose Chilcote and said, don't do it. If you go and protest, those guys will shoot you because they're looking for a target. So so you had this, you had all the elements there. Also, these were public lands ranchers and Rose Chilcote and the great old bras were trying to get stronger regulations on them. And they knew that. And they saw that as meaning that Rose and her husband were anti-cow and wanted to kill their cows which is kind of a strange, strange viewpoint, but you know, that's part of it too. So uh, it's, it, in a lot of ways, the gate gate, it's like where it all came together um, and the timing of it too, because it was, it was a few months after Obama had designated Bears Ears National Monument. It was also a few months after Trump had got elected. It was before Trump had shrunk Bears Ears National Monument, but the whole thing actually played out in the Valley of the Gods, which at the time was in Bears Ears National Monument, but Trump later took it out of Bears Ears National Monument. So that is representative of, of all kinds of stuff. Um, in the end, what happened is that first, the charges against Rose were dropped. Mark, they continued to pursue him uh, for maliciously wanting to kill cows. He eventually pleaded no contest um, and got off with a fine. Um, and then Rose turned around and sued the ranchers and the, for detaining her and Mark on the road when this after the event happened. Um, and she sued the county commissioners for, I don't know, false prosecution or something like that. And that lawsuit is still pending. So 
for them, the nightmare kind of goes on, unfortunately. Well, I think this is a good place to to start to wrap up. And I guess I was I was surprised by the ending of your book. It's very optimistic. So do you think things are getting better? Do you think that we'll be able to find common ground with the sagebrush rebels? Or do you think progressive movements in, in politics just kind of grow and overwhelm the sagebrush rebellion here in San Juan County? I mean, I, I mean, part of the reason I'm optimistic is because, of course, San Juan County's power structure, the, the county commissioners who have always been the kind of voice of the sagebrush rebels, they're different now, you know, I mean, because of redistricting, because of a, of a court ruling, there are now two, not only two Navajo people on, out of three on the county commissioner, county commission, but they are also pro Bears National Monument and they're, you know, of a completely different mindset than the old county commissioners were. So I think um, that's one reason to be optimistic. And another reason is that from what I can tell, at least, ever since um, when when Biden was elected and then, you know, it started to become clear that eventually, we think, he's going to restore Bears Ears National Monument, there has not been the same sort of backlash that there was during the debate over designation, um, the original debate. I don't know why that is exactly. I, I think a big part of it is just that probably locals are are starting to realize like, you know what? It's not that bad. <laughs> a national mind designation, you know, for better or worse, it, it's not that big of a deal. It, it takes things out of potential for mineral leasing and mining claims out of contention. But you know, whether that stuff would happen anyway is kind of in doubt in most of the monument. So I think maybe people are realizing that they don't have as much to lose as they thought they did. A and B that they actually have something to gain, you know, economically speaking, and in terms of what their backyard might look like, you know, we don't really know. But if you look at Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, which is also managed by the BLM, there there are parts of it that feel like a national monument kind of, and that are crowded and that have sort of infrastructure and trails. But a vast majority of it is kind of just like normal BLM land. It's like you can kind of go out and camp somewhere. It's it doesn't feel like a national park, mm-hmm. which I think was one of the fears is that, oh, no, it's going to be all developed and there's going to be crowds and there's going to be paved roads and there's going to be visitor centers. You know, that's not the case with Grand Staircase, really. So I think maybe people are realizing that and they're not going to be happy maybe about the restoration of the boundaries. But I don't think that there's going to be a, a bitter backlash like we saw before. Hmm. Um, yeah, some of the biggest opponents to or original monument opponents in Blanding also own hotels and gift shops. Exactly. <laughs> and you'll go yeah. in and it's like, oh, you, you're selling all these this Bears Ears merch, yep. but you're out protesting the monument. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would, be, it would be really interesting to see what Cal Black, uh, if he were still alive, what he would think about it all. Because he was a businessman and he was a pragmatist in many ways. And I wouldn't be surprised if he was like, if he would have been of a different mindset than Phil Lyman and would have said, you know what, we can make some money off this thing and we're not making money off uranium mining. That's for damn sure. So maybe we should go for it and build big hotels. Yeah. I, I don't know that, but I mean, Cal Black, he owned 
the like the marina at Hall's Crossing on Lake Powell, he was definitely into tourism and recreation if if he thought he could make money off of it. <laughs> well, that's a good place to wrap up, I think, unless you have anything else you want to add. No, I don't think so. Cool. Well, it's been an awesome conversation. And I'll admit I did read your book over like the past four days. I really moved through it really quickly, but um, I highly recommend it to anyone who's listening. It's If you enjoyed this conversation at all, you'll love the book. So thanks so much for being with us, Jonathan. Thank you. Well, we started something new in our last episode where we want to bring you a little bit of good news at the end of every show. This week, we started with good news, that 30 by 30 announcement, but here's a little extra. The oldest member of the National Park Service, park ranger Betty Soskin, turned 100 years old on Wednesday. Betty works at Rosie the Riveter National Historic Park in Richmond, California, as an interpretive ranger. Unlike other park rangers, Betty actually tells the story of her own life to visitors. Not only was she alive during World War II, she was actually part of a Boilermakers union. If you want to hear Betty's story, there is a great interview with her that NPR recorded eight years ago when she was a sprightly 92 years old. Uh, You will find a link to that story in the show notes. That's it for this episode of The Landscape. Thanks again to Jonathan Thompson for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. And we always love your feedback and your ideas for guests we should talk to on future episodes. Send all of that to podcast at westernpriorities.org or feel free to track down Kate or me on Twitter. On behalf of the whole team at the Center for Western Priorities, I'm Aaron Weiss. And I'm Kate Gretzinger. Thanks for listening. 